All right, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, we left off last time looking at how Paul says that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. And in this, we can also rejoice knowing that we're guaranteed to be in heaven with Jesus. We looked at that last time we were together a couple weeks ago. Then we also looked at how Paul then goes on in the following verses there at the beginning of chapter five to say that we not only rejoice in the fact we know we're going to heaven, we can rejoice in our sufferings because God, God isn't angry with us. And since he has already poured his love into our hearts through the, giving us the Holy Spirit, we can know that our struggles or our suffering will produce God's good purposes in our lives. Look again at what he says here in verse 3. He says, not only that, we've already rejoiced in the hope of the glory of God, or he talks about that. He said, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. And the fact that Paul says that we should rejoice in our sufferings, again, partially because of the fact we know he's not mad and he's not going to punish us. It's already been done. That's been taken care of by Jesus. But there's other things that he's wanting to accomplish. And so we left off last time. I'll remind you of where we left off. We left off looking at one of the things that the good purpose is that's being accomplished by what Jesus is doing by allowing the sufferings is that it confirms our salvation in our hearts. He already knows who are his. But every now, has anybody ever here ever wondered if you were saved, ever had Satan mess with you? Well, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, all that kind of junk. Actually, the suffering, one of the good purposes of God, there's many, we're only going to cover two tonight. One of the good purposes of God allowing suffering in our life that can cause us to rejoice is actually how we respond to the suffering will confirm in our hearts that we're really his because the Holy Spirit will do his work and we'll know that we're saved. Let me just take you back real quick. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Now stop. Doesn't that sound just like what Paul just said? We've been given this guaranteed eternity through Jesus. We rejoice in the fact that we're going to heaven. But then just like 
Paul pointed out, look what Peter says next. He says in verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, we rejoice in the fact that our salvation is secure. We've been sealed by the spirit of God. Our salvation is being kept in heaven for us. We're being guarded by God's power through the Holy Spirit. We're untouchable, if you will, to Satan, unless he allows for his purposes, which we'll get to in just a little bit. And in this we rejoice, though, also though, if necessary, he's allowed trials to prove our what genuine, our faith genuine. In other words, and then he goes on and he says, gold, which is tested by fire, our faith is going to be tested. Let me just stop real quick and remind you of something. Maybe you hadn't ever really thought about this. Maybe some of you have or just forgotten. What was the first thing that happened to Jesus right after he came up out of the water from his baptism? What's that? Okay, okay, right, the dove. But I'm talking after, after his baptism, what's the very next thing we see happening in the scriptures to Jesus? He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested. Isn't that interesting? If God is going to take his own son and have him go through testing, you guys going to think you're going to escape it? Actually, you're going to see that God had his purposes there, and he's got his purposes in our life as well. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12 said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We've already talked about last time we were together how Jesus told the illustration of the two different people that build houses, one on the rock and one on the sand, and the wind and the storm and the rains and everything hit both. Which one stood? The one built on the rock. The one built on the sand washed away. Jesus himself talked about in the parable of the soils how some seed falls on the rocky soil. When trouble comes, it falls away because it has no root or the cares of this world and wealth choke other seed that falls on the thorny soil. And there's going to be those among us who profess that they're his. Well, let the rubber hit the road. Time will tell whether or not you're really saved. I, I, a preacher said this years ago. He said, I don't know about Billy Graham, but I know about me. And people say, how dare you question Billy Graham's salvation? No, he wasn't questioning Billy Graham's salvation. He was just saying this. The only one that know is God and you. But one of the ways that we'll be able to recognize that people are his is when trial comes, do they stay? Do they stay? Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 18 through 25. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I'm going to stop you real quick and ask you a question. How does Paul know? 
How, I mean, how could Paul make a statement where he says, I'm telling you now, the glory of this to be revealed isn't even worth comparing with what we're going through. Well, he had actually been taken there, remember? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about that. Because of the surpassingly great revelations, God actually had him go through a, uh, uh, he gave him the, the thorn. But the revelations that he was talking about was just in the previous verses to that where he knows a guy, whether he's in the body or not, and he's talking about himself, who had got to see the third heaven, paradise. He wasn't allowed to talk about it. Paul had actually been taken and see, had gotten to see the glory to come. And he actually saying, look, I can't talk about it because I'm not allowed to talk about what I saw. But I can tell you this much. What we're going through now, you can't even compare. You won't even think about the stuff you've gone through once you see what's on the other side. Now, years ago, when I was beginning to really dive into the scriptures, I went and asked this one guy, what year did Paul have this vision or this? He didn't know if he's in his body or not. But when was he taken in to heaven? Was because I wanted to know if Paul's writings changed, you know what I mean, prior to and after his encounter where God took him and showed him heaven. And so I did a little research to find out which books did Paul write before, which books did Paul write after. Guess what I found out? They were all written after. All of the books that he wrote happened after he had already been taken to the third heaven. But listen to what he says now. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for a Adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And if you put these passages together, that's why Peter says, even though we don't see him, we love him. And we're filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy because we're receiving the outcome of our faith, which is what? Fix our marriage? No. The salvation of our souls. That's the outcome of our faith. That's what we're hanging on to. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't care about your marriage or anything like that, but what I'm saying is, is a lot of people, they like to claim Christianity in hopes that it'll fix this life. There's even preachers out there that have written a book, Your Best Life Now. I don't want my best life now. I want my best life in the one to come. Whatever God's purposes are for me here, I want. And as you're going to see, that might mean suffering. Because his purposes are good, even though not always pleasant. So the first thing we looked at last time we were together of God's good purposes is he confirms our salvation by the fact that when we go through trials, where else would we go? That's what when Jesus turned to the 12 and said, you guys are free to go too, when a bunch of his disciples stopped following him. They said, where else would we go? We don't understand why we're going through what we go through, but where else would we go? I don't always understand what you're doing, God, or what your purposes are, but I know this much. I know who you are, and I know you're good, and I'm just going to hang on. Well, that only happens if he's hanging on to you. Now, the second thing that I want to deal with tonight from Romans 5 and the good purposes of God for suffering is God uses the trials in this life, our sufferings, to grow or increase our faith in him and to make us more 
like Jesus. I'm going to say that to you again. He uses our trials and the suffering not only to confirm that we're saved, but also to grow us more into Jesus' image, to make us stronger in our faith. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Now, to set the stage for where we're going to look, in Hebrews chapter 12, we've just finished chapter 11. And chapter 11 is where Paul has been, sorry, not Paul. I don't know who the Hebrew writer is. Some people think it's Paul. I'm not sure. I don't think it is. But the Hebrew writer actually had just listed the hall of fame of faith, men and women of faith. And then he says in chapter 12, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, like they did, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, look into the future, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you haven't even yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, he just said, he kind of slaps him a little bit and spanks him. He goes, listen, you guys are sounding a little whiny. Do you remember the Hall of Fame of Faith that I just listed? Some were sawn in two, some were killed by the sword. You guys haven't even bled yet. Go back. You're not done. Years ago, I heard of a young preacher who went to an old pastor, a friend of his, who was a mentor. And the, the, the young preacher went to the old preacher and said, the church is treating, treating me really bad. And the old preacher said, they're treating you bad. And he goes, yeah, they're not treating me good. And the old preacher says, have they slapped you? He goes, well, no, they haven't slapped me. Have they punched you? Oh, no, they haven't punched me. Have they spit on you? Well, no, they haven't spit on me. Have they pulled your beard? I goes, no. He goes, well, they did all that to Jesus. You're not even started. Go on back. Keep reading in verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation or encouragement that addresses you as sons. And he quotes from Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you've got an NIV 1984 in front of you, though, it's going to use the word punish. I don't like that. That's, and actually, if you go back to Proverbs 3.11, the word punish isn't there. We've already dealt with that. He's not going to punish you. Because if he does punish you after you've been saved, Jesus didn't take the full punishment. So punish is a bad translation there. The word discipline, though, means teaching, training. What's the root word of, dis, of, of discipline? Disciple. disciple. What's a disciple? A learner, someone that's being taught. Discipline is not punishment. As you're going to see in a few verses, it's not pleasant, but it's a training. It's for a good purpose. It's to make us grow. Keep reading now. He says, Verse 7, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? And if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Now, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
The suffering that God allows in our life is for a purpose. Like we touched on earlier, once you've been sealed by the Spirit of God, Satan can't touch you unless God allows him. And he'll always set the parameters, and with it, he'll never be able to touch your salvation. That's why Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross that day, he said, uh, uh, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. Simon, I prayed for you that when Satan messes with you, and I'm letting him, you won't quit, that your faith won't fail. And what is Peter's response? I don't know about the rest of these bums. I'm willing to die and go to prison. And Jesus, actually, you're not going to do too well in this trial. Before the rooster even crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny you even know me three times. And, of course, who was right? Jesus. At the same time, Jesus wasn't mad. The purpose of the trial that he allowed Satan to do something in Peter's life was to grow him. Because what does he say next? And when you come back, strengthen the brothers. You're actually going to come back a little bit better because of this. You think you're something you're not right now, and this trial is going to show you where you really are. Let me just take my example, for example. Some of you know this, some of you don't. But I spent 2017 dealing with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. When I was diagnosed and we had to go meet with the cancer doctors, I just asked the lady who was the first one we were meeting with, I said, if I decided to do nothing, how long do I have? She said, less than two years. And then God made clear that I was to go through chemo and radiation and all that stuff. And folks, I'm going to tell you, when I went through chemo, I would sit in the chair in the infusion room for eight hours each time, nonstop, as they gave me five different bags of chemo. So much toxic stuff was given to me that actually my wife had to stay away from me for so many days after my infusions. But I, being Jim had already planned when they were taking me around and showing me the infusion room and all the different places where I'm going to have my blood drawn and then we're going to do radiation here once you're done your chemo and all this stuff. I had in my mind, I'm going to go into that infusion room and I'm going to shine for Jesus. I am going to go in there and I'm going to tell people about the Lord and the Lord, you've given me this so I can be a light for you. And God says, yeah, we'll see how that works out. (laughs) Let me just tell you what happened. I've never been more sick in my entire life. What little hair you see, I lost it all. And then I couldn't even get anywhere near that building without getting sick to my stomach. And when I would walk in each time that I had to have my next infusion, I would beg the nurses, give me just enough Benadryl not to kill me, but that'll just let me sleep through these eight hours. That's the only way I could get through it. I would wake up because of all the bags of fluid. I had to go to the bathroom, and I had to take my tree to the bathroom. And then I would go back to my chair and just sit there. And, folks, I found out I wasn't all that I thought I was. But a lot of good purposes came out of that. Was it pleasant at the time? No. Do I want to go through it again? I hope I don't have my cancer come back. But I can tell you this much. My faith is stronger. My understanding of how weak I am is greater And my reliance on him is a lot more than it used to be because I know more about me and a lot more about him. Go to Romans chapter 8. It just talked about how we can share in his holiness through the discipline. 
the times of trials and teaching. Look at Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Doesn't mean all things are going to be good at the time. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, God already knew who's going to be his, and those who he knew were going to be his, he predestined or planned ahead of time that they would be what? Conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. By the way, what's the Bible say is the only way we can be conformed into the image of Christ? Through suffering. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, listen closely, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Listen to what he said. Jesus learned obedience. Now, this is a hard thing for some of you to grasp, but listen closely. Jesus, when he was in the, on the earth, in the flesh, was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. But the Bible said that he limited himself. He took the role of a servant. Philippians 2 says, even though he could have grasped equality with God as something to be grasped, he, he was God. He could have pulled that card out. He even told Peter when Peter's swinging the sword in the garden, look, don't you realize I could just say the word and 12 legions of angels would be right here and take care of it? But how would scripture be fulfilled? When Jesus was on the earth, he said no to his flesh and yes to the Father. And he humbled himself that's why when he was taken into the wilderness to be tempted and tested, what happened? What did Satan say? If you really are the son of God, you can turn these stones into bread and eat something. By the way, could Jesus have turned the stones into bread? Of course he could have. Then he says, hey, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to have people believe in you and worship you because of that. You could just go up here on the pinnacle of the temple and just throw yourself down. It says in Psalm 91 somewhere that he won't let anything harm you and the, and the angels will protect you. And, and the temptation was, is he going to take things into his own hands? Because he could. Or is he going to humble himself to the role the Father had? It? Now listen closely. We live in a day and age, and especially in America, where a lot of the preaching you hear is on you are all this through Jesus. You are an overcomer. And those things are true. But biblically, even though we have been given authority, we need to, like Jesus in this life, say, Lord, when do I use it? And when do I take the beating? Because it's not about me. It's about you. And he learned obedience through what he suffered. And that's the only way we're going to become like him is to learn how to say regularly no to our flesh and yes to the spirit. And the more we do that, the more we become like Jesus. I don't have time to chase this, but you do know that uh, Paul 
could have easily pulled out his Roman citizen card in Acts 16 when he was in the Roman colony of Philippi and they beat him and threw him in the inner cell with Silas. But in that instance, the Spirit of God must have said, just take it. But later on in Acts 22, he pulls his Roman citizen card out and says, are you allowed to beat a Roman citizen? There are other times that he had just allowed the trials to happen. But then we also know that in the end of the book of Acts, he appealed to Caesar. He claimed his rights. How come sometimes he claimed his rights and other times he didn't claim his rights? Because he was walking in the Father's will and the Father's plan. Beware of any teaching that will take you to one extreme or the other. Beware of any teaching that says you're to always just take the low road and always just never claim your rights. No, there's times you can claim your rights. But you got to know when the Spirit's telling you to claim your rights and when the Spirit's saying, no, in this instance, I don't want you to do it. I've got a bigger plan by not claiming your rights. You understand? I'm not throwing away the fact, because we're going about to touch on it here tonight to get you ready for where we're going to go in our study. There is a lot of power that is available to us right now because we're children of God. And many of us as Christians don't know about it. Yet I don't want you to all of a sudden get so excited about your power that all of a sudden you become God. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Has anybody caught these words yet? Endurance, steadfastness, patience. You understand what I'm saying? Is this process a quick thing? Can you go to a special service where a special preacher and the Spirit's being poured out and some guy can lay hands on you and all of a sudden you're better? Now, this is a process that has been begun by God himself. You've received all of Jesus you're ever going to get when you got saved. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now it's a matter of learning to let him have control of us, and that is a process. But let the process have its full effect. Don't get off the operating table until the surgeon is done. You have it in the morning. You lay still. I, 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 you actually have to go to an outpatient. Are you going in the hospital? Outpatient. Are they going to give you one of those hospital gowns? I have no idea. But let me just say, if you put on one of those, the end is in sight. All right. So go to First Peter. Go to First Peter chapter five. Go to First Peter chapter five. Look at verses six and seven. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world." And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Wouldn't it be cool to have God establish, restore, and all that? Well, what do you have to go through first? Suffering. Now, something jumped off the page at me when I was praying over this passage a couple days ago. It says your brotherhood 
through brothers and sisters throughout the whole world are going through. Is there not a part of the globe right now that we're all pretty aware of that our brothers and sisters in Christ are really suffering? And just as I've been praying over this, God spoke to my heart through a devotional that I have that I use on a semi-regular basis. And I opened my devotional that day, and it talked about how Jesus showed up that Sunday that he rose from the dead where they were hiding. The disciples were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And the devotionals talked about how even though they were hiding behind locked doors, Jesus wasn't stopped by that door. And he showed up. And that's what I've been praying. And I want you to join with me if God lays it on your heart. Be praying for all the people that are hiding right now in that part of the world. Hiding behind locked doors for fear of what the Russians are going to be doing or whatever's going to happen. And pray that God, because he can, can show up. That Jesus would arrive and reveal himself to them in such a way that the doors won't keep him out. That they'd come to know him through this. That his purposes would have their full effect. We a lot of times want to just alleviate any suffering. Please understand, this whole walk with Jesus is a life of balance. Should we care about people suffering? Yes. Should we meet needs? Definitely. Should we never let them suffer? No. If someone had given the prodigal son a soup and a sandwich, he might not have gone home. You got to know when the spirit of God is saying, let them hit the bottom. Other times he's going to say, meet the need. And again, beware of any preaching or teaching that sends you to one side or the other. There's a balance. What's God wanting from us? To walk with him. To walk with him. But understand that his purposes are good. Now, there's one last thing in Romans 5 in verses 1 through 11 that I want to pull out before we move on to the next verses. We've already looked at how God's love for us was demonstrated through Jesus on the cross before we became God's children and how that should not make us fear God's wrath now. But Paul goes on to say that we should rejoice and live in the power of Jesus's life. Look again at verses 9 through 11. Since chapter 5 of Romans, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his what? His life. This is what I'm going to touch on right now. I want to preach on it, but I'm not going to because we're going to be dealing with it in great detail in chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Romans. But as much as his blood was powerful and his death extremely powerful, that's not the whole gospel. The whole gospel is that he lived a sinless life. He died in our place on the cross. He rose from the dead and ever lives. That's why we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The one that has reconciled us to God is never going to die. The one who is interceding for us. By the way, people always say, they, they picture Jesus interceding for us like God has a certain feeling toward us. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't feel that way. They're mine. They're covered. No, no, no. You know how Jesus intercedes for you? By living. By being alive. That's how he intercedes for you. He doesn't have to talk to the Father on your behalf. Actually, Jesus himself said that in John chapter 14. He said, don't think that I'm going to ask in that day on your behalf. No, the Father loves you already because you believe in me. I in them and you in me and I in the Father, we are one. That's what he prayed for in John 17. As much as he cares for us to being unified in the faith. In John 17, when he said he prayed that we would be one, 
like you and I are, Father. I and them and you and me. Jesus intercedes for us by being alive because we are in Christ and he's in us. And so he says much more now will be be saved by his life. Let me just give you a couple of verses that illustrate this. We won't break them down, but I want you to begin meditating on them. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I tell you right now, Mr. Burks, I'm pretty sure seven sermons are going to come out of these verses right now. The preacher in us is just going to get like, I'm going to fight. By God's grace, I won't preach on them. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's this treasure, by the way, we have in jars of clay? Jesus himself. Christ himself. The Holy Spirit that's been poured into our hearts. We have this treasure in jars of clay, though, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed. Anybody else perplexed? I am. But not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Do you see it? God's wanting to display his life through us now. More on that later when we get into chapter 6, 7, and 8. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to verses 13 through 23. In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, listen closely, and gave him as head over all things to who? To the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, the father is not saying, hey, one day you're going to get to heaven and everything's going to be great. He says, I left you here for a reason. But I've left you in these jars of clay for a reason so that my power would be revealed. You're going to go through struggles. You're going to have sicknesses. You're going to have tests of your faith. You're going to have where's God moments. You're going to have why did God or why didn't God moments. You're going to have a lot of questions and you're going to be tempted to just take things into your own hands. 
But if you who are sealed by my spirit will allow me to just give you a peace in the midst of it, you'll come not only out through it stronger, the power that raised Jesus from the dead will be demonstrated through you and the other saints, together with all the saints. Well, you'll see what I mean. Go to Ephesians 3 when we talk about together with all the saints. Go to Ephesians 3. Look at verses 7 through 21. Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Listen closely. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Hang on a second. God wants to right now, through the church, display his eternal glory and his power to who? The authorities in the heavenly places. That's the angels and the demons. We've, for years, according to Matthew chapter 5, do you good deeds before men so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We thought we were on a stage to let our lives be, let people in this world see Jesus, and that's only a part of it. Have you all ever noticed in 1 Peter, the Bible says the angels long to look into this relationship that we've been given? Why are they curious about it? Why? Because God, one of his many purposes in Jesus is to... Display his glory to the angels and the demons. And I want to talk about that more, but I don't have time because we have to stay on task for tonight. But God wants to right now through the church display his glory to the angels. That's actually helped me when it comes to temptation. I'm serious. Let me just be honest with you. And if you're honest with yourself, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's easier for you to be obedient to Christ when other people are around and watching. Correct? Are not the times you struggle the most... When nobody else is around, when you're by yourself and you don't have anybody far as you know able to see what you're doing, isn't that when you struggle the hardest with temptation? Isn't that when you lose the most? I do. But you know what's helped me? Is the fact that God's word said, Jim, there are people watching. It's the angels and it's the demons. And when you keep giving in to those areas... When no one's around, you bring shame. You grieve me. But when you, even though no human being is around, say, I'm going to still be obedient to Jesus. I'm not going to listen to Satan when those temptations come. The demons and the angels who can see the spiritual realm and the physical realm, they give praise to God. You know why they give praise to God? Because if I say yes to the spirit and no to the flesh, that has to be the work of God. That ain't me. Because apart from him, I can do nothing. So you're on a bigger stage than just people. When you're alone, you're not alone. Oh, Jesus is in us. Oh, yeah, but the spiritual realm can see what's going on. Keep reading, though. Listen to what he says next. This was according, verse 11, to his eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. In other words, I'm going through this, but God's going to use it for his good. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend, listen, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God that you be conformed into his image, which you've been predestined to, be, to become. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Again, I want to preach on this, but let me just say this much. That's why the church took the Lord's Supper regularly. It was to remind them of what Jesus did for us. We've turned the Lord's Supper into everybody bow your head and everybody close their eyes. Everybody think about what Jesus did for you. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. It was a fellowship meal. It was a koinonia meal. And Paul says, my prayer is that together with all the saints, you would comprehend the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of the Lord. And you take this Lord's Supper to remind you of what he did for us, Paul says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. What I received from the Lord, I passed on to you in the night that he was betrayed. He took the cup and he took the bread and he said, this is my body. This is my blood shed for, and by the way, it's hard to see it in the English, but in the Greek, it's y'all. Not just you, for all y'all. More on that later. Go to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. One last one. And then we'll jump into chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, as far as we're going to get tonight to keep us up with Tuesday night. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Again, we are going to be breaking down how to live in the power of the Spirit as we get into chapter 6, 7, and 8. But Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, listen to what it says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dwell, dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch that? Are you in the spirit or in the flesh? Well, it depends on how I'm. No, no, no. If Christ is in you, you're in the spirit. If you walk in the flesh, you choose to go act like the old person. But you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And when we start to understand who we are, what he's accomplished, what is available to us now, again, beware of any preaching that'll take it into, you can call the shots. No, but at the same time, you don't have to lose as much as you're losing right now in your battles with Satan either. And there's more that God wants to accomplish through you if you'll let him. Oh, it doesn't mean he won't get it accomplished. He'll use, he'll use whoever he wants, and he doesn't even need us. He can use rocks if he wanted to and donkeys if he wants to. He's going to get his stuff done, but he wants to receive glory by letting his life be manifested. We would agree that his death was pretty powerful, wouldn't you think? Well, his life is just as much. If not, Paul says much more. More on that when we get to chapter 6, 7, and 8. I did real good, I think. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for if the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, who wants to come up here and explain this to us? We're going to have to take a couple of weeks to break this down. There's a lot here. What we're going to do now is just kind of lay a foundation for where we're going to be when we come back next week. Paul goes on now to show that just as one man's sin passed on to all people, so too can Jesus's one man's act of righteousness be passed on to all who receive it by faith. And he's illustrating Adam being the first man, Jesus being the second man. I think it's called second Adam. So what, what, what I want you to hear is this. He is going to, as we'll see next week, he's going to explain that there's similarities. It's not a perfect one-to-one illustration because Adam's sin affected everybody. Jesus' righteousness could affect everybody, but it's not going to because his has to be received by faith. But let me just say this. Years ago, Adrian Rogers was preaching on this passage, and I heard a recording of it, and I thank God that I did because he brought out something that I've never thought about in this way. He said, when people read that they're accountable because of Adam's sin, some people get mad. And they say, well, I don't know why I should be tied to this one guy, Adam. I didn't vote for the guy. How come what one man did now makes me guilty? Because, you know, the Bible does say very clearly, you don't become a sinner by sinning. You sin because you're born a sinner. We're going to look at that in just a second. Because of Adam's sin, sin was passed on to all men. I'm going to lay that out for you in the time we have tonight. But let me just say this. Some people may say, well, that's not right. Why am I tied? One man's sin now affects me. And Adrian Rogers put it this way. He said, you better praise God that one man's sin can make you a sinner. Because if one man's sin can make you a sinner, one man's righteousness can make you righteous. If you can be made guilty through one man, you can be made righteous through one man. And thank God there was one who came as a man who wasn't just a man. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we used to regard Jesus according to the flesh. We don't do that anymore. We know that he was more than just a man. In the same way, he then says we shouldn't treat each other the same way either because we're new creations in Christ. We shouldn't just see each other as human. But in the same way, that one man who came in the flesh did what Jim Johnson and all of y'all could not do. He lived without sin. He was fully obedient to the Father. And then God punished him instead of you and me. 
And the Bible says that his righteousness would be given to us just by receiving it by faith. Now, go to Psalm 51, verse 5, though. Let's, let's, let's hit this real quick to show you scripturally how you and I were born sinners, but you and I were sinners before then. How was I a sinner before I was born? Well, let's let the scripture speak. Go to Psalm 51 and look at verse 5. Listen to what David says. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, was David saying that the act of sex that his mom and dad had in making him was sinful? No. But he was a sinner from the moment he was conceived. Why? Because it had already been passed on and passed on and passed on and passed on all through all humanity to his mama and his daddy. By the way, that's why the virgin birth is so important. Sin would have been passed on to Jesus if he had an earthly father and mother, correct? That's why he has an earthly mother, but his father is God, so that sin wouldn't pass on to him. That's important. That's why the virgin birth is so important. But at the same time, write this down, look at it later on. Job 14, verse 4. It says, can anything clean come out of something that's unclean? And then it says, not even one. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the scripture says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the ways in which we used to walk. You were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then, of course, the next verses say, but God in his mercy made us alive through Jesus. But listen closely, folks. We are born sinners, born guilty, and there's nothing we can do about it. And then he illustrates back in chapter 5, we're not going to take the time to go back and read it again, but he illustrates proof that you're born a sinner, that you don't sin and that makes you a sinner, that you're born a sinner. Here's how he proved it. He then goes on and he said, you all do know that the Bible says very clearly that the soul that sins, it shall it shall die. That's in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. God clearly lays it out. He says, look, the soul that sins, it shall die. Actually, again, I don't have time because I want to chase something here in the time we have left, 10 minutes we have left. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God comes to Adam before he's made yet, and he commands him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but on this one tree, don't eat it. Because in the day that you eat it, Eat of it, you will die. Now, when you get to chapter 3, of course, in the meantime, Eve's been made. Satan comes and tempts them. They're there together. They eat. And the moment that they eat, all of a sudden, they realize their relationship with God has been severed. And they hide from him. And God comes and he says, did you eat of the tree? Of course, they start throwing blame back around. And then in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, God says to Adam, there's a couple of consequences that are going to come out of this now. One is the earth is going to make you really have to work to get your food. It's going to fight you. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. Oh, and not only that, because you've broken the command, you're going to, you were made out of the dust of the ground, and you're going to go back to the dust of the ground. You're going to die one day physically. Now, between Adam and Eve, when they were given a command and they broke it, and the time of Moses, do we have recorded any commands of God that had to be obeyed? No. The law 
which Romans 5 verse 20 says came to increase the trespass, actually didn't come until hundreds and hundreds of years later. Did anybody live between Adam and Eve and Moses? No, no, no. Did anybody not die? No. They all died. Well, how come they all died? They didn't break any commands. They didn't sin by breaking a command. They had sin in them. And it had passed on to them. And the soul that sins, it shall die. Oh, by the way, they did sin. But they didn't sin by breaking any command like Adam did or the people in the time of Moses did. And Paul says in Romans 5, that's evidence of the fact that everybody's born a sinner. One man's sin was passed on to everyone. One man's righteousness is available to everyone. There's a difference. It's not automatically passed on to you. You have to receive it by faith. We'll get to that later on. But I want to chase something real quick. Do you remember how I quoted to you Genesis 2, 16 and 17, where God tells him in verse 17, if you eat of the wrong tree, the tree I tell you not to eat from, in the day that you eat of it, you'll die. Yet then God comes in chapter 3 and says, okay, because you've eaten of this tree, one day you're going to die. How come God said in the day you eat of it, you'll die, but then he said later on you're going to die? Here's why. Let me hit this hard and fast. There are three deaths in the scriptures. And the word death, by the way, means separation. Three deaths that the Bible talks about. The first one is this. It is the spiritual death. And that's what God was talking about. At the moment you eat of this tree, you will die. They were in a right relationship with God. They were spiritually alive. He was in their presence. They walked with him. They had no fear. They were naked. They had no shame. They were alive spiritually. But the moment they broke the command, they died spiritually. Did anybody come and say, uh-oh, now you've done it. What happened the moment they ate of the tree? They knew it. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden, and they instantly, that relationship they had was gone. They were afraid of him now. By the way, it's kind of interesting. If you look prior to the flood and after the flood, man's relationship with animals changed after the flood as well. God says, I'm going to put a fear of, the, of man in the animals, and you can go chase them and eat them and stuff like that. But it's interesting. But they died spiritually. But not only that, they also, because of sin, now aren't going to live forever physically. They're going to die physically. It's one of the consequences of sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says the soul, sorry, uh, it's appointed for man once to die and then after that face the judgment. So there's spiritual death that happened to everyone. We're born that way now, though. Adam and Eve, from the moment they broke the command, they spiritually died. But that sin has caused us all to be born spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You didn't die one day spiritually. You were born that way. In sin were you conceived. Now, at the same time, there's a third death. There's spiritual death, there's a physical death that's going to happen one day, and there's also what the Bible calls eternal death, or also called the second death. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And it looks like we're going to end up in the exact same spot as last night, which is great. Thank you, Lord, for that. 
Because we ended up in a weird spot last night, and we're going to end up in that same weird spot tonight. Revelation 20, look at verses 11 through 15. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here John sees the final judgment of all the wicked dead. There's always been, there's been previous resurrections of the rapture of the church. There's been the resurrection of the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints for the millennial kingdom. And at the end of the millennial kingdom is this final judgment of all the wicked dead who have been in a place called Hades and this place of torment. And they're going to come up out of there and they're going to go before the great white throne. And that's not going to be a time of fun because even earth and sky is trying to get out of the presence of God because of his wrath at that time. And everything they'd ever done was recorded in books and they were judged each one according to everything they had done. And then they double-checked, make sure their name wasn't in the book of life, which is the Lamb's book of life. And because their name wasn't there, they were cast into the lake of fire, which is the what? The eternal death, the second death. Listen closely. We're born spiritually dead. One day we're going to physically die. But for those of us who put our faith in Jesus, even though we may physically die, we will never experience the second death, eternal death, because we can, by faith, through the one man's righteousness, be made alive spiritually. Do you understand? You have a decision that you need to make between your birth physically and your death physically. You're already born spiritually dead, but you can be made alive spiritually so that even if you die physically, you will never experience the second death or the eternal death because you've been made alive. I'm going to read you two scriptures. We'll break them down next week, but let me just have you a couple. I want you to start looking at them and kind of praying over them before we get here next week. And I'm going to give you some more next week as well, but go to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, they're going to be a little confusing. If you've never really seen them before, I will break them down for you next week. Look at verses 21 through 24. Jesus is speaking, and he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. So if you've been given eternal life, will you ever experience the eternal death? No, you can't. You've now moved into eternal life which you're going to find out in time as we break it down next week, is physical and spiritual. But go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. This will be our last passage for tonight. Jesus said to her, this is Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, even though he dies physically, he'll live. Actually, just prior to this, in chapter 8, he's already been talking about the fact that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive. I'm not the God, your father's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Then he said, they said, you're not even 50 years old. Do you see Abraham? Yep. Even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob died, they're still alive. By the way, had Moses and Elijah died prior to Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain? How come they showed up there on the mountain with Jesus? Because they're still alive. They died physically, but they're alive still spiritually. And one day they're going to get their physical bodies. And we're going to live forever physically and spiritually. But the only way you can get into that club is through faith alone in what Jesus did, the one man, the second Adam. And just like one man's, one man's sin, Adam's sin can affect everyone. One man's righteousness can affect everyone, but they're different. One was just automatically passed on to you. The other one you have to receive by faith. But you will live even if you die. And actually, and I'll touch on this more next week, even though you may die physically, you're not going to really die. You never die. Let me, let me just say this to you. I'll touch on it. We'll probably bring it up again next week. One of the best illustrations I can give to you what happens when we pass from this life to the next is like a baby being born. If you were to go talk to that baby in the womb, you'd say you're about to pass from the world you know to a world that's beyond your imagination. It's so big you can't even fathom it compared to where you are right now. It's a better place. That baby would say, I'm good. It's warm. I'm being taken care of. I'm being fed. Now, granted, the baby would say, the longer I live here, the less comfortable it gets. I know you all would agree with that, would you not? The longer we're here, the less comfortable it gets. But then well, one day, the baby passes from the life it knew to the new life. It was already alive. It didn't all of a sudden become alive. It just started to breathe in a whole new way, didn't it? For those of us who are in Christ who've been born again, we've already been made alive by the Spirit. And we're going to pass from this life to the next, and you're not going to die in the process. Oh, your body's going to go back to the dust, but you're going to go right into that next new world and just begin breathing in a whole new way. Do you all remember how Stephen died when they were stoning him? Didn't even sound like he was saying, ow, ooh, ee, ooh, while they were throwing rocks. Oh, his body was falling to the ground but he was carried right into the presence of God. For those of us who are in Christ, you're never going to die. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.